turn, but uh, all of Scripture, of course, lifts up and glorifies God, so most certainly be that thematic consistency. So go ahead and turn to Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 6. I'll be doing verses 6 through 15. By the end of the American Revolution, all the parties that were involved, of course, wanted the most favorable terms of the agreement that would, you know, call, uh, that would signal the end to the war. So uh, what they did was uh, they gathered up people to meet in Paris. The United States sent a delegation that included future President John Adams and uh, future, I think it's the $50 bill portrait, Benjamin Franklin. Anyway, uh, I don't see enough 50s to, to know. So the, Ameri the uh, United States sent uh, John Adams, Benjamin Franklin, and some other men to uh, meet in Paris with the other parties involved. They met with the French, the Dutch, the Spanish, and of course the British, the principal adversary in this war. Well, the talks were a tremendous success for the Americans because it uh, ended with their, their colony's independence being recognized by Great Britain. They're recognized as an independent nation. In addition to that, they were granted fishing rights, and the British agreed to release all the prisoners of war. So the Americans, of course, were as happy as they could be with what had happened here, and they commissioned a, an artist named Benjamin West to paint a picture of the occasion. And uh, so he, he was ready to do that, but there was a problem. The British delegates would not sit for a painting because they naturally... At, felt like this was an embarrassment for them. You know, they, the greatest empire on earth at that time, had been defeated by the, or was, was surrendering in a sense to these uh, upstart colonies. So they refused to, to sit for the painting. So Benjamin West just did what he could. He painted the American, de American delegates, and then where the British delegates would have been, he just left a big blank space on his canvas. <laughs> so that painting still sits in the uh, National Historical Park in Massachusetts. It still sits there today with this big blank spot where the British delegates would have been. The painting is incomplete. Now, if you think about things that are incomplete, an incomplete painting is not the worst thing in the world. I mean, it's very noticeable. It jumps out at you, of course. But Colossians chapter 2 talks about a different kind of completeness, and it's talking about completeness as humans, spiritual completeness. So read along with me as we uh, look at this passage, and I pray that uh, the Lord will bless you all this morning and, and help us all to see that in Christ, I'll go ahead and give you a little spoiler, in Christ we are complete, because humanity in their natural state due to the fall is incomplete. Now there's a doctrine that we teach called total depravity, and, and it doesn't mean that people are as bad as they possibly could be. The total part means that every aspect of our being has been corrupted by sin. So our mental aspect, our spiritual aspect, physical aspect, all of that's been corrupted by sin. So we are not complete as born. And of course, we are enemies of God, so we are spiritually dead. But in Christ, we are brought to spiritual completion. And then, of course, one day uh, when, when he returns and brings us to be with himself forever, we'll be brought to all those other areas of completion. All right, Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 15. Follow along with me. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, 
abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing, by triumphing over them in him. Amen. So what I want to look at today, I want to highlight two commands that are in this passage and sort of break down what the, uh, what the Apostle Paul says about that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And the first command is this. He tells us that we should live in our relationship to Christ. We should live in our relationship to Christ. Verses 6 through 7 says, uh, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, as talking about at salvation, you received him, so walk in him. Walk in Christ. Live in Christ. Live in your relationship. So think about this question. What does your life revolve around what is the center of your life? What drives your major decisions? What shapes your values? What is it that sets your priorities, your long-term goals, your ethical choices? Or complete this sentence, I live for... Now, I know it's easy for the first thing to come to our mind maybe to be the more trivial things. You know, I live for the weekend, or I live for... Uh, motocross racing, or I live for uh, mud wrestling. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, I really should not uh, ad lib here. Uh, is it pleasure? Is it success? Is it pleasing others? Is it retirement? Is it a certain income goal? I live for that day when I will earn $1 million. We, uh, years ago, I worked for Laterno Incorporated, which is now Komatsu here at the south side of town. And uh, there was a vice president there who uh, his goal was to retire when he reached $1 million of, of net worth. And uh, so that was what he's living for. That's, that's, that was his goal in life. Now, if you're a believer, we all know, I think, that the answer should be Jesus. I live for Jesus. I, I, as the Apostle Paul said, I, I make it my aim to please him. I live for his glory. But we all know, of course, that in the busyness of life and in the corruption of our own flesh, the temptations thrown at us by the world and the devil, that very often we are not doing that. And that's part of why, of course, the Apostle Paul was led by the Spirit to even say this, because it is a needed reminder for us that we should revolve around Christ, that he should be the center. You may recall that the church in Colossae, to whom this was written, was under spiritual attack 
There were false teachers that were leading people astray. In essence, they were saying that trusting in Jesus was a good start, but you need to move beyond that to really make progress. So yes, you're, you're saved yeah, pretty well, but to be a true believer, to be complete, you need to do something further. And Paul, of course, firmly slapped that lie down. Verse 6 again says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Now, I mentioned that that refers to our daily lives. Uh, for instance, Genesis 17 says, When Abram was 99 years old, I lost it. When Abram was 99 years old. Okay, there it is. Yes, and the Lord appeared to him and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me. So God was telling Abraham, this is, this is the way you need to live before me, as, with me as your king. And so that's the same idea that Paul is getting across. As you have received Christ Jesus, so walk in him. Walk before him. Live with me in mind. Your walk is the way you live your life. And so the command here, of course, is to live in Christ. Live in light of your relationship to him. 1 John 2, 6 says, whoever says... He abides in him, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Now, uh, I don't want to blunt the force of that verse, but I do want us all to recognize that there is not a single person in here who fulfills that verse, right? Is there anybody that wants to stand up and say, yeah, when I compare my walk to Christ's, yeah, we're about, you know, we're, we're pretty even. Nobody's going to say that, Right. What Paul, excuse me, what the Apostle John is saying is that that should be our aim. That should be the direction of our lives. Recognizing we're going to fall short. Recognizing every day of our lives, every moment of our lives, we continue to need the saving, sanctifying, forgiving grace of Christ because we fall short. Still, because we have been born again, the direction of our heart should be toward walking as he walked. And so that's why the Apostle Paul is reminding these Colossians. As one scholar put it, this passage essentially means that we are to walk in Christ as the sphere or element in which our life is to find development. So, <clears throat> in other words, you think about some of the long-term goals you have in life, because it isn't wrong to set long-term goals. You know, I want to learn to speak Spanish, or I want to, to uh, get a degree in engineering. It's not wrong to set those long-term goals, but you, you need to set them under the context of, Ultimately, I am still living for Christ. And all of your long-term plans then you hold with an open hand, recognizing that God and his sovereignty may come in and change that plan. This morning, or excuse me, last night, I'm sure Sam was planning 100% to be standing on this platform to preach the word of God to you. And something changed. He had to, as, like all of us, he had to hold that plan with an open hand. So after Paul says, walk in him, then he describes what that means. He breaks it down into a few more things. Uh, first of all, he says to remember your connection to Christ. As you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted in him. He's reminding the Colossians of their essential spiritual connection to Christ. It is from Christ that you draw spiritual life. Just like a, a uh, branch off of a root is drawing life from that root. And part of what Paul is doing, remember, he is attacking these people who are saying, yes, you need Jesus, and you need these other things. Yes, you need to trust in Christ, and you need to do these other things. And so he's reminding them, no, look, your life 
All of your spiritual life comes from your connection to Christ. So first remember that, that you are connected to Christ for life. Just as the root of a plant provides life to the rest of the plant, Christ, our root, provides spiritual life to us. So in order to live in Christ, we have to remember that, it, that we're connected to Him in such a way that we are entirely dependent on Him for spiritual life. If we were not connected to Him, we would be dead spiritually. Now you see how this directly contradicts what these false teachers might be bringing in. Because what other than the root is going to give life to a branch? What else is there? What shiny and beautiful thing? I mean, you think of gold, for instance. If you lay a piece of gold beside a plant, is that going to cause that plant to grow? No, that plant has to be rooted in the soil. It has to receive nutrients from his roots. So Paul is reminding them, guys, the only way that you live spiritually, the only way that you grow spiritually is through your connection to Christ and not these additional things that these people are bringing in. Just as it would be ludicrous for a plant to move away from its root in order to grow, it's ludicrous for a child of God to think he can grow by moving away from Jesus to something or someone else. Now, this was not the problem in Colossae, but the youth group recently has been going through the book of Galatians. And one of the, uh, the, the problem in Galatia was this group known as Judaizers. You know, these people who were saying, Again, you know, yes, Christ is the Messiah, salvation is found in only Him, but in order to truly please God, in order to truly advance, in order to really be approved, you have to follow the Mosaic Law. And Paul says in Galatians, absolutely not. Same thing is going on right here. Paul is saying, it is Christ and Christ alone that gives you life, it is Christ and Christ alone who gives you spiritual growth. So you, any, any move to something else is a move away from Christ, away from the root. Remember your connection to Christ. The second thing he mentions about walking in the Lord is to grow in your knowledge and obedience to Christ. Verse 7 says, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught. Built up, of course, refers to growing and making progress. Being established means becoming stable are unwavering, and both of those refer to movement in your spiritual life. So uh, at one point in the book of Hebrews, the author says, you guys should be eating meat, spiritual meat by now, but you're still on spiritual milk. You're still babies. They had not been built up. They had not been established as they should have been. So what Paul is encouraging the Colossians to do, especially in light of them being troubled by this false teaching, is Build yourself up in Christ, in his knowledge, in his salvation, in his sufficiency, and no other source. Be established in who he is. The way to get stronger spiritually is always to dig deeper into the gospel, to dig deeper into the nature and character of God, and not some other outside source or human invention or ritual. Advance in your spiritual life by going further into the knowledge of Christ. One author paraphrased Paul this way, you need to make progress, but it is progress within the relationship you already have with Christ, not progress away from him to something else. So there's not some new level where you go, okay, here's the gospel, that saved me, now what do I need to move on? He's saying, no, no, the gospel is everything always because Christ is always the center and the only way you grow is by going further with Christ himself. God wants you to be established in the faith. 
And we get established in the faith by renewing our knowledge of the faith and expanding our knowledge of the faith. We get established in the faith by exercising our faith. As you trust him, as you walk with him, and you see his work in your life and the lives of others, your trust in him grows and becomes more deeply rooted in your soul. Now let's suppose for just a minute that you're sitting there and you go, you know, I, I, I don't think I really am established in the faith. I'm, I'm really not, I'm always doubting God's goodness. I'm, I'm doubting my relationship. So here's a couple of ideas to get established in the faith. Read through one of the Gospels, completely read through the Gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and study it. What does this tell me about Jesus? What does this tell me about the sufficiency of Christ? What does this tell me about the source of my life and forgiveness? Another idea would be to read a good book on Christology, which is a theological study of Christ, the nature and character and work of Christ. Dig deeper into understanding all that was behind this glorious sacrifice on the cross. Uh, hopefully most of you are pretty familiar with the Old Testament, but as you know, there was this entire culture of sacrifice and propitiation that God had set up to picture and point toward Christ. So when he died on the cross, there was so much going on in the minds of these Jews who would have been witnessing that, the ones that believed anyway. Read a good book on Christology, the basics of the faith. Uh, ask the Lord to strengthen your faith. And maybe meet regularly with another believer of the same gender and talk about what you're going through. Pray for one another. Read scripture together. Make an effort to be established in the faith. Now, I do want to emphasize this. Now, when Paul was writing to these people, so they're they're a bit unstable, right? He's worried about these false teachers coming in. They're being tempted by this new shiny thing that they're bringing and wanting to kind of step away from the simple faith of Christ. When Paul wrote to them, what did he say? He said that they are rooted. They're already rooted. If they have trusted in Christ, so if you have trusted in Christ, you are rooted. Even if you are immature, even if you are unstable and weak, you are rooted in him. You are joined to him. That happened when you trusted in him. But now what the Lord wants you to do is to grow in that relationship. He wants you to mature and be strengthened in it. The last thing he mentions about walking, he says, remember... Excuse me, remember your connection to Christ and grow in your knowledge of and obedience to Christ. And then the last thing he mentions is giving thanks. End of verse 7, abounding in thanksgiving. Now, when I first read this, it always seemed a little bit odd to me. Like It was almost like a throwaway line. Like, okay, I need a third point for this sentence. I'll throw in abounding in thanksgiving. Of course, that was not the case. The, The men who wrote scripture being moved by the Holy Spirit. There was intent and purpose behind all of them. So if you think about it, it does make a lot of sense. In order to live in Christ, we need to be focused on him. And by giving thanks to him for what he has done, we are forcing our minds and our spirits to focus on him, reminding ourselves of his mercies and his blessings and building our love and appreciation for him. One of the things that, uh, that's referred to later in the, uh, in the book of Colossians is the worship of angels. So uh, we take from that that one of the heretical teachings that was being brought in was, you know, you, you, you come to faith in Christ, and as you want to move up in these spiritual levels, then there are these different angels you need to worship. And, uh, of course, Paul is, is constantly uh, destroying that. But think about how abounding in thanksgiving would work directly against that. 
But he's saying, abounding in thanksgiving toward Christ for what he has done. Again, drawing your heart and your mind back to Christ. Building your love for Jesus Christ. And if your love for Jesus Christ is stronger than any other love, some cool angel, Azazel or something like that, that's not going to tempt you, right? So it makes sense that Paul would say that. Give thanks abundantly. One of the ways you live out your relationship with Christ is by giving thanks abundantly. Ephesians 5.20 says we should give thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as an application for that, very simple, right? Every one of us can take a few minutes today and thank the Lord Jesus Christ for what he's done for us. Thank him that although he was eternally existing in perfect harmony with the Father and the Spirit, he chose to take on human flesh, to be born as a helpless little baby into this dirty, sinful world and walk among us for 30 years, stubborn, sinful, apathetic, rebellious humanity. And then, of course, the pinnacle that he would allow himself to be captured by evil and wicked men, to be beaten, to be mocked, to be scorned, and then to be nailed to a cross. And on top of that, after receiving all of the wrath of man, still being willing to receive all the wrath of God against our sin, suffering more than any other man has ever suffered before or since. Praise and thank the Lord Jesus Christ for what he has done for us. And friends, that, think about, thinking about all that that Jesus did, what on earth can compare to say, oh yes, I need something else to add to that? There's nothing that can hold a shadow to what Christ has done. And that's what Paul is trying to remind the Colossians of. Do not be tempted to look somewhere else for your spiritual life or your spiritual growth because everything is found in Christ. Remember your connection to Christ. Grow in your knowledge of and obedience to Christ and give thanks abundantly. That's all part of living in our relationship to Christ. That's the first command I wanted to highlight. The second one he mentions in verse 8 is to beware or be on your guard. Beware of being taken captive. Look at verse 8 again with me. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. In the previous passage before this, Paul had said to the Colossians that he wanted them to avoid being deceived. He wanted them to avoid being deluded by false teaching. And here he makes this warning even more serious. The word translated as takes captive means to carry off as plunder. What he's saying is don't let these false teachers plunder you out of the true body of Christ. You can just imagine an invading army grabbing citizens and taking them back to their land as spoils of war. And by the way, one of the things this highlights for me is that when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to the sufficiency of Christ, disagreements about that or other teachings about that, this isn't just a disagreement among friends. This is actually spiritual death being brought in. These are wolves trying to bring people out of the sheepfold of Christ. And it must be fought against. It must be opposed vociferously. In Acts chapter 20, Paul gave a similar warning to the elders of the church in Ephesus. He said, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things 
to draw away the disciples after them. Paul wants to remind us that you have an enemy who is trying to capture you. You have an enemy who wants to draw you away from Christ. Paul said that you could be taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Now, in this case, what he's talking about is any view of God or man or the meaning of life. That's what he means by philosophy, uh, a view that is based on human traditions and elemental spirits instead of Christ. Uh, And by the way, that term, elemental spirits, probably referred to spirits or beings that these Colossian heretics were promoting as more important than Jesus. I mentioned that at one point he says something about the worship of angels. That may have been what Paul was talking about. Also, it could have been talking about the spirits that ancient astrology associated with the stars and heavenly bodies. But Paul is telling the Colossians as clearly as possible that any view of God, any view of man, any view of the meaning of life that is not based on Jesus Christ is a lie and should be rejected out of hand. Do not be taken captive by it. I think about, uh, you know, the, the Apostle Paul said in, in Ephesians that these, uh, some fierce wolves would arise among you. And you think about the church today, and there are men and women who come to popularity within Christian churches and spread falsehood. They spread things about uh, looking to other things than Christ for your sufficiency and your salvation. Uh, one that does, does come to mind is what's often known as the uh, New Apostolic Reformation, that uh, there are a group of men that say now they are, they are apostles on the same order as the, uh, the original 12, and they've been given this authority and power, and so they should be listened to as authorities, and uh, you need to be walking in, in the ways that they say. And, and again, what it's doing is saying, follow me, right? Follow me. And Paul says, look, unless somebody is telling you follow Christ, then you reject them. Do not be taken captive by them. So let's go to something positive now. So we got these two commands, you know, live your connection to Christ, but beware of those who would take you captive. Then he gives us a couple of beautiful, soul-satisfying truths. Verse 9 says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Probably these false teachers were t- that were threatening the life of the Colossian church probably were teaching that Jesus was less than God. And it's widely believed that the Colossian heresies developed into what was later known as Gnosticism, uh, which taught this, this uh, hard division between uh, spirit and matter. Matter was bad and, and spirit is good. And the Gnostics used this word fullness to refer to all of God's powers and attributes. And they taught that the fullness of God was actually spread out among a number of beings that they called emanations. It's sort of like, here's the, here's the source, and then there's one step away, there's this other being that's a little bit less, and two steps away, a little bit less, and then you get down to uh, humanity, down at the end of the chain. And so they taught that the fullness of God is spread out among all these beings. So Paul is saying... No, no, no. The whole fullness, all of that that you think is spread out over all these beings, all of that dwells in Jesus Christ. And as somebody pointed out in our uh, class this morning, in this verse is encapsulated the truth of the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ. All the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. So Paul is saying, guys, Jesus 
is absolutely everything. Rest in that, rejoice in that, live in that. Paul wants to make it clear that everything, <clears throat> excuse me, the whole fullness of God, all of God's powers, all of God's attributes dwell in Jesus. He is completely God. He is not partly divine. He is 100% divine and, of course, 100% human. That is why we can live in him, and that is why we reject any belief that would de-emphasize his role in our lives or the sufficiency of his sacrifice. He is completely God. And that is also why Paul says in verse 10, he is the head over every rule and authority. Because again, the Colossians are saying, okay, there's Jesus and there's these other things you need to look at. And Paul is saying, you guys, if you have Christ, you have the pinnacle. You have the top. You have absolutely everything. So stop looking anywhere else for salvation. Stop looking anywhere else for satisfaction and contentment and spiritual life and growth. It is all found only in Jesus Christ. Look at verses 10 and 15 again with me. Excuse me, 10 through 15. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Actually, we'll pause right there. Because verse 10 to me is probably the most liberating, peace-giving, joy-inducing, worship-motivating verse in Scripture for me. You are complete in him. I was sharing with my class this morning, uh, and no one has to raise their hands, but all of us as humans struggle some with insecurity. And in a sense, that should be. We should recognize, okay, I'm not everything I should be. But because of that, we're always looking for something to fill that, something to meet that insecurity. You know, that's why uh, the way I like to put it, uh, you know, I've been in youth ministry for many years, and uh, sometimes you get a guy... It's usually in the 15 to 17 range. And when they come in, you can tell that they're determined to show everybody that they're the toughest guy in the room. I just want you guys to know, without saying it, by their actions and their words, I just want you to know I'm the toughest guy in the room. Now, what they're doing, of course, is trying to fill some insecurity. I don't think I'm necessarily the toughest, but I want everybody else to think I am. Paul is telling us, though, that in Christ we are complete. We need look for nothing else because we are complete. As the ESV says, we are filled in him. All the fullness of God dwells bodily in Christ, and we are filled in him from that fullness. You don't need to look anywhere else to complete you. You don't need to look anywhere else for contentment. And that, contentment, and that is why the Apostle Paul could still experience joy and contentment even when he was in a filthy Roman jail because he was still complete in Christ. What he was going through is just temporary. It didn't change the fact that spiritually he was complete in Christ and needed nothing else. Now imagine that you get in your car and you drive a few thousand miles to Cannon Beach in Oregon. And I know in June that sounds really good. You get out of your car, you're holding an empty cup, and you walk across the sand and you wade into the water until you get waist deep in that cold water. And then you take that empty cup and you submerge it in the ocean and then you lift it out. That cup is now filled with the fullness of the Pacific Ocean. Now, the level of the ocean won't drop, right? Maybe an atom, I don't know, physically speaking, of course. But when you think about Christ, his fullness is absolutely infinite. So when he fills us, it doesn't diminish him any 
but it completes us. That fullness is not only available to everyone who trusts in Christ, but it is actually a reality. You are filled, you are complete in Jesus. The teaching of the New Testament very clearly is not, okay, do this and then you'll be complete in Christ. Do this and then you'll be rooted in Christ. The message of the New Testament is trust in Christ and then you are rooted in him and then you are filled in him. You are complete in him. You're given the Holy Spirit. You're adopted into his family. You're reconciled. You're forgiven. You've given, given an eternal inheritance. If you trusted Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, if you have trusted Christ for the forgiveness of, of your sins, you have been filled in him. You have been made complete. Now think about the other side of that. That means that everybody, anybody in this room, or anybody outside these walls that has not trusted in Christ, they're not complete. As Paul says in this passage, they are actually dead in their sins and their trespasses. And Lord willing, that should motivate us then to tell people that there is salvation and life freely given in Jesus Christ. Not to tell people, man, you know what? You really need to join our church. Man, you know what? You need to go on a mission trip with me. Man, you know what? You need to do this or that. No, no, no. Point them to Christ. There is salvation, there is life, there is completeness in Christ. Even though we are not fully mature, we are complete. I think about uh, Ansel Anderson. Ansel Anderson. He's uh, Josh and Randy. Josh is one of our elders. Josh and Randy Anderson, their, their youngest son. Now, he is a complete person. He is fully a human Maybe a fallen one, but he is fully a human, but he is not yet mature, right? He is going to grow, going to grow physically and mentally, spiritually and emotionally. So the reason I bring that up again is to, to highlight this truth that even though you are complete in Christ, you are not yet fully mature in Christ. And that should give us impetus then to want to learn more about him, to grow in our obedience to him, to grow in our knowledge of him, to grow in our love from him and to him. We as Christians lack nothing spiritually. There is no further deed, no further action, no further experience that is needed in order to make you spiritually complete. <clears throat> I can't see the time back there. Somebody tell me. Never mind, it's right here. Okay. I'll, I'll move along. So let me, uh, let me close, uh, kind of wrap up this way. I don't want to say close because then you think it's only one or two minutes, but let me, let me wrap up. Let me wrap up this way. Uh, let me read the rest of the passage again just real quickly and highlight a few things. Uh, starting in verse 11. In him, Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. In saying that we have been circumcised by the circumcision of Christ, Paul is saying that we have been saved and we have been made part of the covenant community. We are completely saved. That is part of that completeness in Christ. He underscores this by pointing to our baptism in Christ now, I believe, and, and there's probably a, a variety of belief within fellowship about this, but I believe in this case he's referring to our spiritual baptism by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ that all believers have. 
When we are saved, we are baptized, we're immersed in Christ by the Spirit, and we are treated as if we died with Him and were resurrected with Him. And of course, that's exactly what water baptism pictures. It's an outward sign of that spiritual reality. It pictures our being buried and being raised. So in Christ, we're complete. We have complete salvation. In Christ, we have complete forgiveness. Verses 13 and 14, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh... God made alive together with him, listen to this, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Now, I remember, uh, I've probably shared this with y'all before, I grew up in the Assemblies of God, which is an Arminian denomination, so uh, there's always the possibility that if you mess up enough, then you'll be out of the family of God, even after having been adopted into the family of God. And so one of the things I struggled with because of my background was this idea that when I am saved, that all of my sin is taken care of, my past, my present, my future. In my mind, it was like, well, I can understand my present and my past, but I haven't yet done those yet, so something needs to be done with those. But think about that logically for just a second. If it is not the sacrifice of Christ that covers my future sins, what will I'm, I'm still lost then, right? And that, of course, is part of the problem with the Armenian system. You can't truly have rest or security in Christ if you're like, ah, I may mess this up within a, a few days, months, or years. We have complete forgiveness in Christ. God canceled, wiped away the record of debt by nailing it to the cross. Excuse me, to the cross. We also have complete victory. Verse 15 says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Christ. These rulers and authorities are spiritual beings, different orders of angels, and in this case, of course, fallen angels. Paul is saying that Satan and his demons were disarmed and defeated through his death on the cross. A victorious Roman general would be paraded, excuse me, would parade his defeated enemies to humiliate them and show a superiority over them. And so Paul is saying, by triumphing over Satan and his minions through his death on the cross, Christ has humiliated Satan and his demons. And since we are united to Christ by faith, we share that victory. Though we struggle against Satan and his angels now, the victory is already won. Satan and his angels do not have any claim to us. We have been redeemed, they have been defeated, and they cannot control our lives or direct our destiny. I'm reminded of uh, Super Bowl 20. How many of you were there? I'm kidding. I wasn't there either. I was watching it on TV. Super Bowl 20. I was so excited. The New England Patriots were playing the Chicago Bears. I was sure the Patriots were just going to come in there and take it to them. And uh, I don't know how many of you remember the game, but within about five or ten minutes, it was obvious that this was uh, a bunch of men playing a bunch of <laughs> boys. It was, it was complete and utter defeat. I mean, absolutely humiliating. In fact, the guy, the first string quarterback for the Patriots at that time, Tony Eason, he was pulled early in the game because he was so ineffective. Of course, the backup didn't do much better. But years later, whenever there was an anniversary of that Super Bowl, it's 10th year, 20th year, something like that, he would get calls from people who want to interview him, and he, stopped, he started refusing the calls because he was just embarrassed and humiliated by it. Well, the, the victory that Christ completed 
over these rulers and the authorities. It is far more complete than that. It was far greater, far more humiliating than that. So Paul is trying to encourage them, guys, don't even think about worshiping these defeated beings. They stand so far below Christ, there's absolutely no comparison. You have victory, complete victory in him. So don't look elsewhere. Don't look elsewhere for satisfaction, contentment, forgiveness, or spiritual victory. Jesus completes us. I think that's the main thing that I want to get across to you guys. Jesus and only Jesus completes us. So in your spiritual life, in your walk, when you're trying to grow, when you're struggling with sin, when you're beat down by a trial, look to Jesus for your satisfaction. Look to Jesus for your comfort. Look to Jesus for your strengthening and your growth. And let me just mention a couple of applications If you've trusted in Christ, you're united to him, you are now complete. Think about your motive for why you do certain things. Do you give regularly to the church thinking that that will make you complete? Do you think that participating in some good work like helping the homeless or serving at uh, Bailey Elementary and helping those kids there, do you think that that will make you complete? Do you think attending a church service will make you complete? Do you think that volunteering in the youth ministry or teaching a life group will make you complete? Now, I know that none of us would say that out loud, but I guess I want to challenge each of us to just search your heart and think, is there anything I am doing to try to complete myself rather than resting in the completion that Jesus Christ gives? Uh, I've probably mentioned this a lot over the past couple of years because it's a recurring theme in my own heart, but as I as I grew in my understanding of God's grace, I came to realize that very often the church itself can be the enemy of, of rest in Christ because they will say things like, you're saved by grace through faith alone. Now here's what you need to do next. And the here's what you need to do next are good, righteous, glorious things. You do need to. Let me just say that. Yes, you do need to pray. You do need to read your scripture. You do need to join with the other saints gathering together to worship God. But none of those things completes you. You do it out of gratitude and love for what Jesus Christ has done for you. So that's my encouragement to you today. Search your hearts to see if you're trying to find completeness elsewhere. And let me just say, encourage you this way. If you know Jesus Christ, I want you to confess today that you can rest in him. Remember the promise he gave in Matthew 11? Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. It doesn't mean you just sit back on your couch all day drinking cherry Coke and eating peanut butter M&Ms. It's, it's a pretty awesome afternoon if you think about it. But that doesn't mean that's how you live your life. There are things God wants you to do. But for your completion, for your salvation, for your forgiveness, you can rest. That's why I said all those who are laboring and are heavy laden, you're working to justify yourself. You're working to make yourself important. You're working to justify your place on this earth or in this family. Jesus said, nope. I've done all of that. I've done all of it. You don't have to prove or, or hold on to your place in the family of God. Rest in me. Let's go to the Lord. Gracious God, thank you so much that you have given us Jesus. Thank you, Son of God, that you did the work of redemption, that you completed it, Lord. It is all on your shoulders. We praise you because you alone are worthy. You alone are faithful. You alone are perfectly obedient. Praise you for what you have done, Lord Jesus, and praise you for saving us in you. 
I ask God for a special measure of grace for everyone that is here, for believers that they would be reminded of who you are and enabled to rest in your strength and power. And for those who don't know you, I pray that the Spirit right now would lift up before them the truth and beauty of Jesus and show them, Lord, that just if they would trust in you, if they would believe in who you are, that you would save them, you would wash them, you would bring them into your family. Thank you for gathering us here this morning, Lord God. May your name be glorified. May your kingdom come. May your will be done. Amen and amen. I'd like to invite the musicians back. Thank you, John. Please stand as you're able. Invite you to respond to that word, that reality of who you are in Christ, the sacrifice, the commitment. Um, respond by, by this song. Mm-hmm.